Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This week on Truth and Movies... Andrew Garfield dives deep into a paranoid pop culture conspiracy in David Robert Mitchell's Under the Silver Lake. I don't care what's fashionable or cool. It's all silly and it's all meaningless. From Cannes, it's the Camador and Queer Palm winning trans drama Girl. And in Film Club, Elliot Gould is Philip Marlowe in Robert Altman's 1970s spin on Raymond Chandler's The Long Goodbye. I want you to get naked so you can tell me the truth about my money. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. It's Michael Leader here, sitting across this week from two editorial team members for Little White Lies, David Jenkins hey, hey. and Hannah Woodhead. Hi. Welcome both. Big news this week. There's a new issue out, right? So, David, party popper sound effect. Yeah. Um, streamer sound effect. Yeah. Stream, yeah, no, they, they don't make sound. What do you call like, those things that you blow into? Those Twizzler things? Isn't that streamers? I thought streamers are no, the streamer oh. long... Streamers don't make sound, even though what the name called? streamer makes them... Write in if you know what they're called. The, exactly. The little... At LW Lies on Twitter, let us know. But let's toot our own horns now. David, tell us about this new issue. On the cover, we have a film called High Life by uh, Claire Denis, mm -hmm. who is uh, one of my personal favourite directors ever. Mm -hmm. She doesn't make the kind of films that you necessarily could put on the cover of a film magazine. They're, they're often quite obscure and have, you know, um, not, not very sort of starry casts in them. But luckily, she's made a sci-fi film with Robert Pattinson <laughs> and Juliette Binoche. So all the stars were indeed aligned for mm -hmm. this one. And uh, it's a real, like, proper head trip 70s Tarkovsky Kubrick style space odyssey film but entirely unique at the same time uh -huh. and yeah we spoke to Claire and we uh, and Hannah spoke to our Pats himself who comes across as an, an utter delight yeah, but, yeah yeah he was I remember getting you to listen to the audio because I couldn't understand something he'd said and and David was like he's very giggly and he <laughs> is he's very giggly yeah he was he was very charming and he, he's a total cinephile so it was oh. really nice to talk to him about like the films he loves you got me to listen to the bit where he was listing the directors <laughs> he wants to work with and, and I think the name you couldn't get was Marinada who, I couldn't who, understand oh, what he was saying he was the director of Tony Erdman and yeah. then and then he sort of went on to say he doesn't want to name too many because he doesn't want to jinx it or look like some like weird fanboy. He said he doesn't want to look like he's treating them like Pokemon, like trying oh, to yeah. catch Just, them. Is all. that the actual reference? That is actually drops. what he said. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But he's already worked with so many great directors. Well, this is the thing. He said I'm crossing them off quicker than I can come up with them because mm. he was talking about. Um, you know, he's he's working again with David Michaud, and you know he he's he just seems like very 
excited to be mm-hmm. doing his job. To say he's been in the industry as long as he has now, he, there's none of that kind of like, oh, it's so tough being Robert Pattinson. He's very much like, hey, I'm so excited to be here, so excited to be making movies. It's just, yeah, it's just really charming. I wonder whether he is, what, what it would be like if he ever does go back to a big, glossy, soulless, faceless corporate well, franchise they keep movie. talking about him for Batman, so we'll as, see. As Bruce Wayne, Batman. Mm. Yeah, that could work. Could work. I don't know. It would be a different type of Batman. He I doesn't have I'd, that kind of suave. I'd miss him doing the weird films that he's doing now. If he went and did another soulless blockbuster, there is this feeling in Hollywood with actors that because I mean, remember when Michelle Williams did Venom, and she was quite open about the fact that <laughs> she's just if, doing if, it to fund Kelly Weinhardt. I, I just want to be able to like give like <laughs> siphon some funds off to Kelly Reichert to make whatever she wants. So that's why I'm here, folks. I'd, I'd love to see Robert Pattinson in a Batman film where he could bring in one of his filmmaking buddies, so the Safdie brothers doing a Batman film. I love that. Good time with Batman. That really would be. That would be so good. Oh. Let's bombard the Safties with tweets. And when say, we see them at Cannes this year, yeah. you and me, Michael. Yeah, you grab one, I'll grab the other. I'll get Benny. <laughs> but that's issues on stands Ish- now. Issues on sale now mm-hmm. and through the Little White Lies web shop, which you can get to through our website, and lots of other goodies in there for you to enjoy. Any one or two highlights, Hannah? I had a lovely chat with Josephine Decker. Like, really, really nice chat. She flew over for LFF just for two days. And I I got her just after she got off the plane, and she was very much like, Hi, I'm so happy to be here. So we had a really nice chat about Madeline's Madeline. And yeah. Which is coming out in May, I think. Right. May 10th. Yes. Another movie release. Yes. Mm-hmm. So. Which we're going to talk about N- shortly. N- nice uh, under segue the Silver Lake. into yeah. Under the Silver Lake. A nice segue into the new releases. <laughs> uh, and actually coming up, we have an interview clip with Andrew Garfield. Another, yes. another sort of giggly high energy interviewee. He was, uh, <laughs> he was a charming man. Yeah, we'll come to that shortly. But first, let's transition to Under the Silver Lake. Writer-director David Robert Mitchell follows It Follows with this crackpot L.A. noir. Andrew Garfield leads the Sam, a scruffy deadbeat who shares one tender evening with his neighbour Sarah, played by Riley Keough. When she goes missing the next day, Sam sets out on a search for her, one that takes him deep down the rabbit hole of L.A. urban legend. Could comic books, video games, cereal boxes and even pop music lead the way to finding her? I don't care what's fashionable or cool. It's all silly and it's all meaningless. I created so many of the things that you care about. The songs that give your life purpose and joy. When you were 15 and rebelling, you were rebelling to my music. Uh-oh. That's one you know. <laughs> that song was not written on distorted guitar. No, I wrote it here on piano. Jeremy Bob there is the mysterious songwriter. I didn't recognise him first time I saw this film, but actually he was recently in Russian Doll. Ah, I've not seen Russian Doll. Deep into makeup in this, of course. But that is from Under the Silver Lake. David, this is David Rob Mitchell's third film, After It Follows, which was a cult hit, and then The Myth of the American Sleepover before that. Were you a fan going into this? I was a big fan of of his work, yeah, I seen uh, Myth of the American Sleepover uh, just sort of caught it at a festival in uh, Transylvania no less oh. fun place to see a film and yeah it's it's this kind of I don't think it's out available to see like certainly not on home video mm. in the UK so I'm sure there are probably other ways to see it but it's just it is a lovely kind of 
riff on like a kind of dazed and confused film but with slightly younger teens finding out about their kind of burgeoning romantic impulses and uh, uh, and sort of connecting to one another and then he kind of went off and made it follows which is a com- it's very different but very similar at the same time it's like it's almost taking a similar set of characters but then putting them through a horror film mm-hmm, rather than mm-hmm. something that's very realistic and this is something completely different once more. It's right. like where his first two films felt like he was maybe, as a director and a writer, removing himself from the film. There was a certain distance between the material and the, and the filmmaker. This new film, Under the Silver Lake, feels more like the product of maybe like autobiography is taking it a little too mm-hmm. far, but like there is a sense that every character in the film is some representation of david robert mitchell's his mind Mm -hmm. how he feels about the world you know some sort of look in the mirror i guess Mm -hmm. so you have this character of sam who is played by andrew garfield he's got a kind of deadbeat nature Mm -hmm. that there there is a kind of classic setup where you know the beginning of the film he's he's going to be chucked out of his property Mm -hmm. he doesn't seem to have any kind of income stream he's sort of like the way he he walks in a kind of you know, shaggy Scooby Doo kind of way, where he sort of bobs around mm-hmm. and his arms kind of dangling <laughs> beside him. It's it's very kind of endearing. And then um, this strange, beautiful woman who kind of resembles this nineteen twenties Hollywood pinup mm-hmm. is seen wandering around his apartment complex. He kind of sidles up to her one evening, and they have a kind of stolen evening that doesn't quite end up in the with the sort of full-on romantic clinch that he was hoping for but that you know he, I think he sort of sees the seeds of something there and then the next day he wakes up and takes a look in her window and the, the apartment has been completely cleared out the only thing that is remaining is a little box in the wardrobe containing a few strange things including a polaroid and some some like mutilated barbie dolls and there's also a weird symbol that has been kind of painted on the wall a kind of sideways eight symbol and essentially from there, the film fans out into this kind of phantasmagoric <laughs> journey into the underground of L.A. And it's uh-huh. this kind of... David Robert Mitchell's talked about how one of his big influences for the film was his love of computer games. Mm. And maybe, Michael, as a computer game stan, <laughs> you could maybe fill me in here. But like, he was particularly interested in a certain... In, in he referred to them as like the LucasArts games mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of the 90s, which I think were kind of quite cartoony, character-driven games where you click around and use objects to sort of open a door. Mm-hmm. Like objects would be kind of imbued with this special meaning. Mm-hmm. And um, that was one of his influences for this film. And, and you know, I think he's unapologetic about the way that it kind of spirals off into some very strange tangents and has some weird sides along the way. And, you know, it, I, I don't think it is ever aiming for a linear, satisfying, romantic ending. It, it always chooses the path less travelled, mm-hmm. which is which is why I think it's a, a really interesting, impressive, and you know, this it, just it's a properly expansive film. I think mm-hmm. I'm right there with you. In fact, if we go way back in the archive, one of our can specials last year was uh, involved me and Sophie Monks Kaufman just going 
full-blown paranoid conspiracy theorist about this film. It's very hard to talk about on a top level. It's been divisive, but some people find it quite frustrating, the fact that it doesn't maybe land in a coherent way. Hannah, where do you, where do you land on this? Did you go along with the ride or not? It's what I was looking forward to. Mm-hmm. I liked It Follows and I was quite up for it. It seems like my kind of thing. I'm a big Andrew Garfield fan, so, you know, I was ready for it. I don't know, it's a weird one. I don't think I benefited from having watched a screener of it at home. I think it's something that is far better to go and see at the cinema, Mm -hmm. which, you know, people are lucky that they can go and do that this weekend. So I think at first I was kind of didn't, I was a bit like, meh, it's two and a half hours, you know, you kind of have to really commit with it and Mm -hmm. go down these kind of weird tangents that it's going down. But it's actually grown on me a lot since I saw it. Reading David's interview with David Robert Mitchell and kind of reading some other stuff about the film, I kind of like it more now and certainly like the idea of it a lot more. Because mm-hmm. um, it is, it's trying to do a lot of weird things that I don't think we get in movies, especially big movies now. It's kind of clear that he had this runaway success with It Follows and then got this money to go and make whatever he wanted and this is the film that we ended up with. As someone who played a lot of point-and-click adventure for games oh, as a kid, you know, it was very relatable mm-hmm. in that that aspect. And it is full of Easter eggs and references to classic Hollywood films. The music by Disasterpiece, who did the soundtrack for It Follows, is here doing much more orchestral work that was reminiscent of 1950s melodramas. The music's great for this. Specific shots, specific, you know visual jokes. There's a scene very early on where Andrew Garfield is reading an amazing Spider-Man comic, for example, and then (laughs) shares scenes with Topher Grace. So you have one Spider-Man from one universe and a Venom from another universe sharing (laughs) the screen. People who might get off on that can get off on that. It's very much spiralled out of rabbit hole. Um, It's very hard to talk about this on a top level, but let's hear from Andrew. Uh, David, do you want to set up this interview clip? So yeah, I, um, I, I met Andrew and we talked about a variety of things and I started by asking him his thoughts on LA because I think the film is very much about the experience of living in LA and then we, mo- we did actually moved on to his relationship with computer games and uh, yeah, it was a lovely chat. LA is a very strange place. I feel really connected to it and I also feel really disconnected from it simultaneously, which I think is maybe the way it is there I think for most people I think it's quite forbidding but also quite you can get lost in it in a deep way and I think that's what the film is kind of like suggesting that it's a very isolating place but you're also so trapped there it's odd it's a very odd uh, dual kind of sensation but I love it and what was great about this film is I got to know a different neighbourhood that I've never I've never really hung out in Silver Lake itself is it's a neighbourhood that I've never really um, stayed in or spent much time in, and I have friends that live there. And Silver Lake is just a really cool, arty area of the city, and a, a little gritty and a little dirty, and it's, it's ma- massively gentrified now. But there's still a kind of like a rough and ready kind of soul about it, and I think one of the things that David really wanted to um, achieve and to capture in the film is his Silver Lake experience. It's interesting, because I think, I think the film is very... There is a sort of ambivalence about LA. Mm-hmm. On one side, there is this kind of romantic idea of it being, you know, the home of movies and mm-hmm. it having this incredible history. Yeah. But then there is almost this kind of Lynchian yeah. underbelly. Yeah. There. There's a it's, real darkness. It's like the anti La La Land. Exactly. Yeah. It's exactly. it's it's like while those characters were having that experience, Sam was on the other side of town, depressed. <laughs> um, totally like lost touch with his dreams and doesn't know really what he dreams of anymore and I think that is 
LA. <laughs> you know, it's like people who are broke will buy really expensive clothes and a really expensive handbag because perception is is everything. It's far more important than what's real. And there's something so awesome about that and so awful about it. And yeah, that's uh, that's definitely an element of, of of Los Angeles. And I think it's definitely a part of the element of what David was trying to explore. For me, Sam sees himself as like a Travis Bickle. He sees himself as the one who can see the corruption and, and sees the like the injustice and even though he feels impotent to, to do anything about it, I think he has these delusions that he's the one that's going to save womankind from the Hollywood patriarchal, toxic, abusive system. He's massively deluded. David was talking about how one of the inspirations of this film was his, his love of these kind of 90s point-and-click computer games. <laughs> um, you send these people on an adventure and... Is that a world you are kind of party to? Are you a gamer? I used to be when I was a kid and a teenager, but then I I stopped for some reason. I don't know why. I think the danger with me is I'm, I get quite fixated on something, and I have a tendency towards laziness. So computer games for me are anathema to creativity a little bit, and I'll just end up not doing anything. Mm-hmm. My dad's a big FIFA football player on, on his PlayStation, and um, I picked up the controller for like a game and I was like immediately just got the dopamine hit and I was just like back in teenage dumb and I thought this is really dangerous I, this is really good that I don't have any I used to have a Wii like as an adult that felt like allowed picking up Mario Kart on the Wii felt enriching but uh, I, I haven't done any of these I haven't like all the Red Dead Redemption and like I got into Metal Gear Solid for a while that was pretty sick games like Red Dead Redemption you know, there's all this talk about how they're kind of like, you know, they've got these epic stories and they're kind of really amazingly well written. Yeah. I haven't played it, so this is hearsay, but have you ever had any occasion where a computer game company has approached you and said, be in our computer game? I never have. Actor? I have lots of friends that do it, though. I have a Canadian friend called Trevor. He's constantly going into, like, a dark room and, like, getting blown up by shells and mortars and playing 18 different characters in the space of like one hour and he has the most fun ever he loses his voice but it's just like it sounds like a really fun gig though but no I do not have a console right now but you know some of the t-shirts David let me design my own t-shirts in the film I feel like he would be the kind of guy that would make his own t-shirts and like no one would get them and everyone would think he was an idiot Andrew Garfield playing FIFA there. <laughs> what an image. Or Red Dead Redemption. I'd love to have a chat with him about that. But <laughs> talking about video games, so much of what I love about this film is that it just scratches this itch that is so contemporary, which is people trying to find meaning and purpose within this post-postmodern world where there's so much media, all media throughout history is available at the touch of a button, and but we want to go on our great adventure, our quest. It, this, this film touches on urban exploration, urban legends, zine-making culture, <laughs> and video games. There's an American uh, psychologist or social historian called Jane McGonigal who writes about gamification, where video games are actually, in some ways, the most powerful outlets for change in the world because it's the only place we get dopamine hits, You know, looking at Twitter, etc. It's the thing that actually gives us meaning and purpose and structure to our life on a daily basis. And... Escape rooms as well. Escape rooms? Do you not see that in this film? Where you go to an escape room and you're given a defined goal and purpose and you have to use your brains and use your uh, intuition to get from one place to the other? Yeah, I totally get it. I just think they sound like my idea of 
personal hell. Oh, mine too, of course. <laughs> I think what's interesting in this film is that it takes on all that kind of... Like, I, I guess there is a sort of new age vibe to it, like mm-hmm. about, you know, oh my God, man, it's a conspiracy. But at the same time, I think it is also like mocking it and uh, yes, yeah. and sort of presents it in quite an ironic way. You know, you can watch a film like... A film that I actually do like very much, which is which I would say is totally absurd, is is a film called National Treasure, and it <laughs> and this this film reminded me very much of National Treasure in that it is a kind of you have this guy who is somehow able to make these deductions in split seconds. You know, it's absurd, you know, how you connect A to B at, at this point in this time is like absurd, and there are there are kind of ironic versions of that in this film mm-hmm. where he's making these connections that are so absurd so far-fetched that actually you know it is almost like mocking convention Mm -hmm. of these kind of i don't know how you'd even describe the films like they're kind of they're detective they're sort of detective thriller films Mm -hmm. yeah i mean yeah it's even going back to like sherlock holmes levels like oh remembering some obscure fact and connecting it to some contemporary thing and Mm -hmm. you know it's having this kind of those eureka moments it is the eureka moments that in this film they're at once quite euphoric but at the same time completely absurd the film that it reminded me of from a completely different genre is Room 237 the documentary (laughs) about the crackpot fan theories related to Stanley Kubrick's The Shining where it is all these people going way way down too deep in their close (laughs) readings of of films this is his kind of riposte to why he didn't film the moon landings or something yeah, like exactly. or why he did film the moon landings. That's just one of the many theories yeah. that comes up there. But I think there's this ambivalence, this almost melancholy streak, existential streak to the film because you have, and maybe it's because it's what resounds with me personally, you, you hit a certain age and you've collected all these video games and comics and nerd knowledge and what you do with it <laughs> as you go into your middle age. A lot of people are off put by the fact that Andrew Garfield's character in the film, he's got a certain... Let's call it a gaze. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, yeah, I, I think it's it, it's easy to take that at face value. And the film kind of, I think, playfully, you know, when he's sort of walking behind a woman and looking at certain parts of her, the camera kind of follows him gleefully, I think. And, you know, whether you see it as trolling or, mm. or like, you know, pushing this kind of stuff in your face that you know is going to sort of rub people's sensibilities up the wrong way mm-hmm. is maybe a negative thing. I, I can understand that people might not, you know, jive with that side of the film. Yeah, it's not really a film for now, really, if you think about the the sorts of films that people are, tr- are championing wanting to see on screen. This isn't really it. It's an exploration of masculinity and identity and uh, it fits very much in, in line with films like American Animals from last year, I think, with Burning, a film that we talked about recently, which I think, did you suggest it was part of the incel canon? Incel canon. Would yeah. this go, go in the incel canon? <laughs> Hannah, do you want to... Is this an incel canon? <laughs> as, the, as the incel reporter for Little Wild Eyes. <laughs> I can see why people would say that. I don't necessarily agree with it. And I don't think Burning kind of glorify these loser guys mm-hmm. who, you know obsessed with these women and I don't think it ever gets to the point of like the aggression that you have with the incel movement and the kind of entitlement Mm -hmm. I don't think that um, Sam has that that kind of level of entitlement I think it's more of a curiosity Mm -hmm. and he's someone who's looking so deeply for something to anchor himself to it becomes you know this grand mystery about this girl just because that happens to be what's going on in his life. I don't think it's, she's a woman and I must possess her. I think it's just, you know, oh, this is kind of weird. I'm, I want to get to the bottom of it, you know, which I think is a very human pursuit. You know, mm-hmm. we 
are naturally, I think, quite obsessive creatures and we like something to kind of obsess over. I mean, you know. But yeah, I do agree that it's not necessarily a film for now, Mm -hmm. but it's, as David, I think, says in his review, and as we've said in the office, it's very cool that we exist at a time when David Mitchell can go away and make a weird film Mm -hmm. about LA and about, you know, going on a wacky caper it's, it's just nice that that can still happen, you mm-hmm. know. So, David, let's, before we move on to the next film, put some scores on this. What would you give this? I would give this um, fours across the board. I really loved it. But I think that the final kind of maybe half an hour is challenging. Even if you're really, really immersed in the film, it does really challenge and push you to some quite sort of uncomfortable places, I would say. And that's very much part of what it's trying to do. So while I entirely respect it, I do think that it's it's maybe a little bridge too far, I think, mm. in, by the end. But mm-hmm. that's my take. Hannah? I think it's like a three, three, four for me. I think there is a point, and watching it, there's a point that I was like, oh, the film should end here. This is a good ending, and it just keeps going. Um, <laughs> same, same. Yeah. <laughs> but like I say, it has grown on me. You know, I think it's got a sort of a charm to it. And I'm excited to rewatch it this weekend when mm-hmm. it comes out of the cinema. I was thinking about this, and it's a film where I think you could probably take any sequence out and it, <laughs> and it wouldn't drastically change the film at all. But at the same time, the film wouldn't be what it is. It the needs whole to be point a shaggy dog story. It is it needs yeah. to have that shagginess, I think. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, it needs to have those wild tangents. Yeah. Even if those wild tangents don't always pay off, I'm so glad they're there. I wasn't a big fan of It Follows, so maybe a three in anticipation, but fours and fours uh, in enjoyment and in retrospect, this film has really stuck with me and it's probably one that I'll keep revisiting over the years. But Under the Silver Lake is in cinemas this Friday and on Mubi as well. You can see it there if you want to watch it at home. Up next, we're talking about Girl. This debut from Belgian director Lucas Dontz focuses on Lara, a teenage trans girl who pursues a career as a ballerina. She pushes her body to the limit as she starts training at a new dance school and contends with the challenges of adolescent social life, all the while preparing for sex reassignment surgery. David, you and I saw this at Cannes last year where it won awards and that was talk of the festival. Hannah, you came to it more recently, outside of the bubble. Actually, I was aware of this when it was at Cannes because mm-hmm. it was getting so much praise. And I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine just who had been at Cannes and watched it and really liked it and I felt I expressed sort of discomfort that this cis man had made a film about a trans woman and we had a kind of a very genial discussion about this film and then didn't really think about it much more and then the film kind of it's been on a journey I think is the mm-hmm. polite way to describe it a couple of trans critics got to see the film and respond to it and then Lucas Don't has been on this press tour where he has I would say not responded in the best and most constructive way to the criticism of this film and now having seen it finally I am just sort of drained by it all right. you know a close member of my family is trans mm. and I was very sceptical about this film, having learned kind of what it was about and some of the things that are depicted in the film. And there's some brilliant writing by trans critics out there. There's a brilliant piece by Kathy Brennan for the BFI about the problems with this film. And there's a really good piece by Danielle Solzman about this film as well. And a lot of my issues with this film are kind of about its obsession with uh, Lara's 
status as a trans woman you know the way that Lucas Stone shoots her it is obsessed with her body mm-hmm. and she faces a lot of adversity because she's a trans woman and that's yeah that happens that's totally fine but the film itself feels to me like an object that is obsessed with it too you know so it's on one hand it's saying oh look at these teenage girls who are assaulting her because they don't like the fact she's a trans girl and yet the film is kind of doing the same thing you know there's all these shots of her half naked there's all these shots like of her crotch and it just made me very very deeply uncomfortable that you would take something that is so painful and Mm. blow it up and present it on a screen as kind of quote-unquote entertainment you Mm. know I think it's an irresponsible film it's Again, playing into this idea of like misery porn, I think a little bit we kind of got this with a fantastic woman with all these like weird shots of Danielle Vega's character like looking at her crotch in the mirror. And it just reduces these trans women to their bodies, which is really insulting to me. I'm sorry, I'm going off a massive tangent about this now. (laughs) But I get no sense in this film of who Lara is apart from her being a dancer and a trans woman. She has no personality. That is who she is. Mm -hmm. It's really insulting and it's difficult for me to say this because it is based on a true story the trans woman who this is her story has said like she fully supports the film and she has kind of spoken out against the critics because she feels that Lucas Dunn has done her a, a justice but I don't see who, who this film is for I think it's playing into very outdated ideas you know it is just like I said it's, it's obsessed with her body <laughs> you know that's such a small part of what being trans is mm-hmm. And, yeah, I I feel like I could sit here and be annoyed about Lucas Don't forever, but (laughs) life's kind of too short for that. (laughs) David, David, what was the the view at Cannes where we we saw it? And did you write your review then? Have you revisited it since? I guess I saw it at Cannes. And, um, I mean, you know, unfortunately, there weren't really many trans critics or Mm. people with those kind of insights who were writing about the film at that point. And I guess... From my perspective, art being this subjective thing that it is, every spectator takes away a certain narrative, a certain mm-hmm. story, a certain emotion and feeling from it. And you know, at that point, I, you know, it was a film that I enjoyed, and mm. uh, it felt to me empathetic and sensitive. Mm. Um, and you know, that steps had been taken to tell this story in a way that was like maybe unique. And at the time, I thought inoffensive to trans people. Well, it has many of these aspects that seem quite thoughtful and probably do, even on second glance, aspects of the film, like the way it portrays the Belgian medical industry. They they choose this particular point in Lara's life where she's considering having this surgery, the the gender reassignment surgery, and going to the meeting with counsellors and doctors and there's the relationship with her father who is, you know, this band t-shirt wearing, stubbly you know, sad dad, single single dad and there's a lot there that comes across as quite empathetic and compassionate but that's what is the value of these films being seen by a broad variety of critics because there are aspects that will, well even when I saw it the first time it does take some turns that are very provocative Yeah. particularly at the back end of the film there are maybe two scenes one of abuse and one of... It it takes what you're saying about its kind of corporeal obsession to an extreme point. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that was actually based on reality or whether it's fictionized, but it's a moment that is going to, you know... Well, Hannah said, who is this film for? There's a scene that I think is meant to make the men in the audience squirm. Yeah. Um, Spoiler. I mean, well, that could mean anything, couldn't it? It could be an anti-football scene. (laughs) But, But I think that, you know... 
I don't disagree with anything you said there. <laughs> and I have read, you know, the piece by Kathy Brennan in mm-hmm. particular, I think is really interesting. I think the only thing I disagree about is the idea of her not having a character beyond her body and her and, and, and the film being entirely obsessed with the physical side of it. I think it really captures a certain shyness and she's introverted, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and it shows that you're sort of left to guess what she's thinking. And I think that that is a far more difficult and interesting presentation of a character than having someone who is open with her emotions and is able to easily articulate something that I think is probably, I suspect, is not that easy to articulate. And it's a tough one because, you know, you know, I can't deny that I liked, I thought the film was an impressive piece of work and, you know, that I think that Lucas Don't is a gifted filmmaker in mm-hmm. that sense. You know, whether I think that politically the film excels, whether the context that it's been placed in, whether the reactions that people had to, you know, I think... It, I guess films are meant to have these these reactions to them that you know people take different things away from them and I think that's I guess what makes us individuals. I suppose it is a very impressive film but then it introduces another complication where do you want a film like this to be seen as a calling card movie it's his debut and it's been given all this uh, attention one of the quotes that resounded with me in, in Kathy Brennan's piece is it's a cis man distorting the intimate facets of my life in order to flex their artistic muscles you know we come away from this saying look at this great new filmmaker look, Victor Polster what a fantastic performance and it's two cis men benefiting from a <laughs> from a, a trans story it's so intriguing and we seem we're, we're asking these questions having these conversations so regularly now about who gets to see films who gets to have that first view and what second and third and fourth views can this change this is what made me so deeply uncomfortable even from the offset of this film where we see the character of Lara kind of waking up and you know it's got this like very like serene kind of music over the top of it and it's the same complaint I had with a fantastic woman you know and I think it does play into this idea that you know, this story in, um, and A Fantastic Woman, both made by cis men, who I think Sebastian Lilio is maybe more aware of his privilege than Lucas Stone, who is, his response to the criticism has basically been, why shouldn't I be allowed to tell this story, you know, which I think is such a kind of troubling thing to say. You know, no one is saying he doesn't have a right to make films. They're just mm. saying he should maybe be aware of what he's doing and take a bit more responsibility for it. I think what's interesting is that a lot of the best films that trans critics have picked out for trans representation are films that are not necessarily presented as trans films. So Alita Battle Angel, Ghost in the Shell, even The Matrix. And, you know, the the work of the Wachowski sisters have been kind of these films that have connected more with issues that trans people face than films that are overtly positioned as a a movie about a trans person. Mm -hmm. But... Again, for me, like like you just said, it all comes down to these movies that we see at these film festivals and the predominant audience at film festivals are middle-class cis people who some will have never even met a trans person in their life. Mm. And until we get to the stage where film festivals are representative of the wider community, then we're not going to kind of get the best films coming out of them mm. and the best films getting the kind of reception they deserve. To me, I'm sure that Lucas Don't will go on to make more films. I'm, for me, I don't even think this is a particularly interesting artistic film. Mm. It failed for me on kind of every level, but I'm not worried about Lucas Don't. I'm worried about the young trans people who would watch this film and think, I've got to take drastic action to make my body reflect who I feel I am on the outside. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really harmful thing to show this. Okay. And, you know. 
Let's put some scores on this to wrap it up. <laughs> Do you want my scores on this? <laughs> Fives across the board, um, Hannah? <laughs> it's like a 2 one, one I really do not see how this film is helpful in any way and I'm glad I don't have to talk about it ever again after this podcast. <laughs> we'll get you on next week. <laughs> David? I'll probably stick with what I used to say in the magazine. I think I said 343. Three. Scores for a film like this is, is super tough. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I won't go back on that. But. <laughs> I'd probably say, yeah, uh, maybe 3-3-2. Three, three, I went in with open eyes, as I always do at festivals, not really knowing it's because it's the debut. And it was effective, if provocatively so at times, and, and less compassionately at others. And it's been one that has, yeah, thanks to the broadening of the discourse, diminished in my eyes. I'm sure that everyone involved will go on to greater things from here, but what's a strange calling card to start with. Anyway, that was Girl, the last word on that for now. Up next, we have Film Club, which this week is the long goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello. Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Now, The Long Goodbye. This unlikely adaptation of the detective novel by Raymond Chandler was directed by Robert Altman in 1973. It's set in the 1970s too, although Elliot Gould's take on Philip Marlowe is something of a man out of time. He looks, sounds and acts like he took a big sleep in 1948 and woke up 25 (laughs) years later in a very different Los Angeles. But there's menace under the sun-kissed surface, as Marlowe is soon to find out after he helps a friend skip town and he's faced with questions from both the local cops and crime bosses. I want you to take off your clothes. Well, I'm going to tell you something. I have absolutely nothing to hide either, but I'm not going to take my clothes off. I want you to get naked so you can tell me the truth about my money. You want to take your clothes off? Would you like me to take off my clothes? It's okay with me. Why, it's a pleasure. As a matter of fact, everybody. Harry, everybody take off your clothes. Marty. I don't want to take off my clothes. I have too many scars. I understand. Go on inside, Peppy. Go on inside and take care of the telephone. In the meantime, everybody takes off their clothes. Harry, take off your clothes. Take them off. George Raff never took his clothes off. Help him take off his clothes, will you? No, no, wait, wait. One second, one second. I don't need any help. Joanne, just a second. I want you to wait right here. I'd like you to see what goes on after all. This is what I owe you. I owe this much to you. And I understand you, you're nervous. Well, I'm not nervous. Yes, you are. You're nervous like I was when I was a kid. I was in high school. 
I used to dread gym class. Absolutely dread it. Why, why you know was why? that? No, because I didn't have any pubic hair until I was 15 years old. Oh, yeah, you must have looked like one of the three little pigs. Mark Rydell there is Marty Augustine and Elliot Gould as Philip Marlowe. And in the background in that scene, of course, it's audio, you didn't see him. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Just stood uh, there. Uh, stood there, <laughs> dressing down to his uh, tight red undies, I think. And, he, and he's doing that kind of thing where, where he makes his pecs sort of dance. <laughs> I didn't I even I, notice that. Yeah, you noticed that. <laughs> that's where my eyes were trained. So, do we have any listener comments for it this week? Hannah, I'll come to you first. Uh, yeah, J.M. Bransgrove. This is my number one film of all time. It's a beautiful, atmospheric enigma with a witty and engaging performance from Elliot Gould. A hypnotic style is not the original Big Lebowski. Fantastic. David? R.P. Anderson sits just behind The Friends of Eddie Coyle as my favourite film. Love the hazy atmosphere. Friends of Eddie Coyle is, is amazing as well. I haven't seen Friends of Eddie Coyle. It's a more kind of like a kind of guy something bad happens and then the whole film is like him knowing that the bad thing is going to happen to him at the end Mm -hmm. so yeah it's a bit more Mm. kind of downbeat than this okay whereas this is quite strange for a noir (laughs) movie for a Philip Marlowe movie you think of Humphrey Bogart you think of the classic films of the 40s and 50s and then this is different we've obviously picked this to connect with Under the Silver Lake not Mm -hmm. Girl and and, uh, in Under the Silver Lake Andrew Garfield's character lives opposite a woman who blithely walks around topless. She's in a kind of older woman who feeds her parakeet topless. And in this film, we're introduced to Philip Marlowe in his kind of, in his weird apartment on the sort of side of a hill. And uh, his neighbours are these four kind of yoga bunnies who just walk around topless doing drugs and like, hi, Mr. Marlowe. And uh, <laughs> I love the bit where he says, I can't remember who he's talking to. He's like, they're clearly up to something. He's like, they're just doing yoga. <laughs> Do you know what that is? Yeah. And, and, and he's like, Mr. Mr. Marlowe, could you buy some brownie mix? I love the brilliant thing about it is he's, all the people who come through his flat are kind of got, like, they're sort of twitching their heads and looking <laughs> over them. He is completely just numb to this. He's like, just trying to yeah, buy his just, cat some yeah. cat food. That's all he's interested in. That's all in. he wants to do. <laughs> yeah, the cat is fantastic. The cat right? is like, it's so good. It's just, you know, it opens on him, like, trying to feed his cat and there's no cat food. The cat's like, rah, rah, going crazy. And he's like, buy the cat the cat food. Doesn't have the brand of cat food. So he decants the cheap cat food into the expensive cat food container. As someone with a lot of cats, you do that, you do that. And the cat always knows. As, as a cat fan and a cat owner, this film was incredibly relatable. <laughs> <laughs> But it's such a fascinating one, seeing all of these little flourishes throughout the film. So giving Philip Marlowe a cat, making him a sort of an old cat man. The fact that he's in the 1940s get-up, he has his beat-up old 1940s car, which I think is Elliot Gould's own car at the time. You have these little touches that Robert Altman has throughout. I love the music in this film. John Williams, the composer, (laughs) co-wrote this one song called The Long Goodbye, uh, which you hear in maybe six or seven versions throughout the film. At the party, and there's some, like... LA Malibu Beach yo-yo types like a piano like hit playing a kind of swing version of it yeah. and uh, and there's a sequence where it cuts back and forth between two characters in cars and it's on the radio in both cars yeah. but a different version yeah. one is sort of smoky Tom Waits jazz number and the other one a more torch bearing song it's fantastic Hannah have you seen this one before did this no no I'm a big fan of um, Raymond Chandler as well so mm-hmm. it's kind of crazy that I also have not read The Big Sleep mm-hmm. um but, yeah, I was very glad to finally have an excuse to watch it. It's one of those films where, I, you know, you kind of like, oh, yeah, The Long Goodbye, you know, it's a, it's a classic, and then you just never watch it if you're like me and lazy. But 
I was thrilled to learn the origins of Hooray for Hollywood, which I was only kind of familiar with from The Simpsons. And yeah. um, so catchy, I still have it in my head this morning. Um, it's just kind of like a hoot, isn't it? It just, you know, again, more endeared to Under the Silver, like having watched this and kind of learned about the long tradition of these kind of screwball noirs where mm-hmm. it's just this guy who's just trying to get through the day and all this kind of weird stuff keeps happening to him. He's just like, oh, God, here we go again. And the <laughs> ending is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. It's, you know, it's What's just... more particular about the ending? Is it him, <laughs> just the... him doing the little dance down the road? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's just driven past yeah. him to see, yeah. <laughs> Just a little like the little skip and the, the yeah. it's just great. So, so the one the one scene that really it's such a strange film because it has you know obviously there is this kind of comic screwball element where you know he is coming into contact with all these various figures. I mean they're mostly kind of you know authority figures, police and gangsters, people who are kind of pushing him around. But you know he is kind of you know in this sort of classic detective noir mold. He he is kind of one step ahead of them. And there's a scene in which the gangster boss, who is played by Mark Rydell, mm. amazing like performance, yeah. almost like a kind of proto-Joe Pesci, Scorsese <laughs> kind of mould. So they're searching his flat for his money. And his girlfriend, who's sat in the car, wanders up because she's a bit bored and she wants a drink. And she says, oh, can I have a Coke? And... Throughout all this kind of, you know, slightly jubilant knockabout humour, there is this moment of utterly horrific violence Mm -hmm. that is kind of staged in slow motion that I'm pretty sure the Coca-Cola company were probably not very happy about (laughs) when they saw it. And the film switches. Suddenly, death is a possibility. Extreme violence is a possibility. You go from this kind of thing where people are just a bit annoyed to oh, actually, no, this is really serious mm-hmm. now. So it literally is this one second of the film that kind of comes out of nowhere. There is a little lead up to it where you kind of suspect something bad is about mm-hmm. to happen, but it's done in a kind of very visceral slow motion shot mm-hmm. that, oh, it's really horrible. Right? And, it, and it really illustrates, I think, what Robert Altman was trying to get at. There's this sort of satirical element, the tension between how we view detectives and these PIs from the 1940s noir films versus what the reality of 1970s LA is. Sure, you have this man out of time, Rip Van Winkle feel, but then there's a more complicated moral landscape here. So, And it all hinges on him having almost too much faith in the 1940s ethics yes. and being stitched up because of that. I love Sterling Hayden in this, who apparently was drunk and stoned out of his mind, so they just had to shoot around him. They didn't <laughs> give him scripts. They didn't give him marks to hit or anything. <laughs> there are whole sequences that are unscripted with him. I think in that sense, it's a very true-to-life performance because he, at that time he was also writing novels as well. Really? So, like, you know, he, he is this kind of, you know, He mad... has the Hemingway beard, yeah, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He does have that kind of old man in the sea kind of vibe <laughs> to him. Uh, yeah, it's just one of those things now where you think, who else could play that role? The Hayden but, role? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, no, you know, it's it's uniquely Sterling Hayden. And mm-hmm. and uh, there's a moment that, that sort of harks back to the Coke bottle, mm-hmm. a very sudden jolt of violence against his character Roger Wade at a party that kind of comes out of nowhere and and again switches like the atmosphere of the film changes in in this in a second Mm -hmm. and suddenly it sort of sets the touch paper for a lot of other kind of bad things Mm -hmm. as well 
Altman at this period. This, this, I mean, this is like this, this is peak for you. This is, even though I absolutely love this film, mm-hmm. I would probably still say there's maybe like three or four other Altman films that I'd maybe take above it. But mm-hmm. I think that's more down to my love of Robert Altman than. Uh, this is my favourite, but this is the one he makes before Nashville, a couple of films after MASH. He's at the peak, really, isn't he? Yeah, yeah I love California Split, mm-hmm. I love Nashville, I love Three Women. Mm-hmm. MASH I'm a little cooler on. I love Brewster McCloud. I mean, yeah, 70s Altman is just, like, absolutely untouchable. Mm-hmm. He just made a ton of amazing films. Mm-hmm. Well, if you want to go deeper down the rabbit hole, there are plenty there. <laughs> that was The Long Goodbye. Please watch it. We're recommending it around this table. And let us know what you think at Truth and Movies on Twitter. Truth and Movies at tclinder.com via email or in the comments section at lwis.com slash podcast. Next week, we're reviewing Us, Jordan Peele's follow-up to Get Out, starring Lupita Nyong'o. We're reviewing the documentary Minding the Gap. And for Film Club, it's Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds get viewing. David, Hannah, thank you so much for joining me this week. I've been Michael Leader and this as always has been a 7 Digital production. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.